This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, Candace, can you believe how fast this year's going? I swear, the older I get, the faster the years fly by. <laughs> I know. This year is absolutely soaring so far. But let's jump straight into today's episode. We have a very special guest sitting down with us today. A bit of background on our guest before we bring him in. So Jeff joined Schaefer Cullen Capital Management back in 2013 and currently serves as the Managing Director and Product Specialist for the Cullen Domestic and Offshore Business Lines. Prior to that role, Jeff was an employee at the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, where he ran their fee-based programs as well as their mutual fund, their, a couple of ETFs there and insurance product lines. He has 29 years experience, as you'll hear, in the capital market space. He's really well-versed when it comes to great quality value-led companies with strong earnings growth and growing their dividend. Tick, tick, tick. All music to my ear as you know, Felicity. So really excited to bring you this conversation today. So make sure you listen to the end of this episode because he's giving us a lot of investable ideas right till the very end. But remember, our chat today is not considered personal advice. Even though we're registered advisors at Shore and Partners, please note that this product and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything discussed is based on facts known at the time, which is the 31st of January, 2023. Welcome, Jeff, to Talk Money to Me. We're so happy to have you here. It's great to be here. Awesome. We are so pumped to be chatting with you today because you are the man when it comes to global equities, I would say. So I want to start and set the scene <laughs> by, you know, chatting about how you're feeling about this market. You know, what's your take on what's been going on, particularly as 2022 was was really volatile, right? It was, and it depends on what side of the, the markets you're on, whether you were a growth investor or a value investor, whether you were in emerging markets or in European equities or US equities, but there really was no place to really hide besides cash because you had same kind of situation of um, a downside on the bond market as well, which really hasn't happened too often in, in many people's lifetimes. I'd say right now it's, <clears throat> we feel generally pretty good overall. What we, we kind of wouldn't be surprised if we saw a quick pullback in the markets between Q1 and Q2. You know, on one hand, GDP in the U.S. came in a little stronger than expected. Uh, inflation is coming down. You're reading the headlines probably about U.S. inflation over in Australia, but you know, it's not likely on its way to 2%. Uh, the U.S. unemployment is stubbornly low at 4% and it's really not moving. As a U.S. citizen here, I can tell you there's help wanted signs all over the place still. So while you're seeing headlines of tech layoffs, um, you know, at the local shops still, 
you're seeing uh, help wanted signs. So it's, it's nothing that's clearly where this unemployment number is going to be rising to five, six, six plus percent anytime soon. It's very hard to see that happening now. Yeah, that's quite crazy, right? Because you'd think that low unemployment is actually a good thing for the economy. So I do still find it very interesting that they do want to increase that. Yeah, it seems to be that they're trying to play the playbook of decreasing demand through pulling out people's discretionary extra money. And that will slow down demand for goods and services, allow supply chains to pick up. It'll allow pricing to come down in certain areas, whether it's housing, whether it's used cars, whether it's brand new cars. Um, but I don't know if you're seeing it in Australia, but what we're seeing in the United States is, is companies are adopting. So you can no longer go to New York City and want to get a full meal at 11 o'clock at night. Restaurants just are closing. You know, they're basically open till 10 o'clock where they used to be open till 12. So the, 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 the reason to keep a kitchen open for two more hours for five people coming through isn't there anymore. So they're closing things down. What's been happening, I've seen, is that the consumer is the one who's had to adjust to them. You wanted to get a haircut? Now it's only open Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. You see that more and more often. And you're just having to adjust to the reality of what's uh, what's happening. Or pay the higher prices as well as a consumer, right? As we live in this inflationary world. Uh, it seems to be the case. Absolutely. Uh, it's not only showing up in food, but it's in services. Uh, and that's sticky. Prices really have a hard time falling besides say gasoline and energy. I mean, once, once people start to increase prices, they tend to, to be sticky, but the, even the energy prices, you know, it's been a mild winter here in the Northern hemisphere, at least for us in the United States and in many parts of Europe. And everyone was worried about the Ukraine war and what might happen to energy prices. And Europe really ratcheted down and try to stockpile as much as they can. And you all saw all the liquid natural gas things going on over in Europe. And yet it's been more mild. So now you have prices on energy, especially in the United States, kind of coming down to 350 a gallon, where it used to be probably at the peak was about 480 or so. Uh, but it's being, it's staying around there at that point in time. It's not, not dropping any further at this point in time, but that, and now you have China opening up. Uh, that is another kicker. So you have this inflation thing and everyone's getting excited about what's happening. And now you have China seems to be somewhat unleashing their economy and letting their people kind of get out there into the world and start their economy again. And that could reignite some more inflation that they're trying to tame. Absolutely. And I mean, is consumer sentiment still quite positive in the US? Because it is quite positive here in Australia still. Um, I know that the US is very driven by the consumer, right? I think it was about 70% of GDP is consumption. So what is the, I guess, general feel in the US at the moment? The general feel is like you have it. It's pretty positive. Yeah. Restaurants are crowded. You know, you have to wait to get uh, reservations. You know, that this is, the, you don't see the signs of uh, a pending global doom. I mean, now, why, 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 while there's a lot of predictions by CIOs in the United States that they will have a recessionary time frame. Remember, a recession could be just a function of, uh, of the, of the math working out. Two negative quarters with a rising uh, unemployment and you'll kind of trigger it. But if it's a very soft or very subtle, uh, negative GDP growth, it's not like a huge recant. Yeah. Remember, there's a lot of workers that just haven't come back to the market in the United States post-COVID. And uh, there's this kind of theory of this quiet quitters where people are just kind of slowing down and they're getting a better stock of what they want to do in their life. 
Yeah. I was reading that it's more like a a staggered uh, recession. So it won't all hit at once. It's all various different um, sectors. So that's quite interesting. I think it's not going to be what everyone's kind of predicted. Yeah, you can see it in people like uh, Peloton, where people are buying Peloton bikes. And, you know, you knew that it was going to only come to an end at some point in time. People eventually could start riding their bikes outside. So it is. It's the you see the positive earnings and, and such coming from airlines. People are traveling a lot. Uh, the strength of the U.S. dollar is now making it very advantageous for people to travel to Europe, and they're doing so. They're booking trips. So, I think the demand is going to be pretty strong, and it's not going to let up like you're saying. Well, that's positive. So, really, to recap, you're sort of a little bit cautious and uncertain for the first half. You were saying we could see maybe a pullback sometime in the next near term, but then maybe, you know, it will look better than what is expected by the market. So I guess a lot of chat around the investment community is when it is uncertain, we saw, you know, growth stocks really get sold off quick, right? They're at the top of the chain to be sold off on a risk perspective and a safer place to hide is value, which is really what the portfolio that your team and you run are really great at. So just before we move on, I'd just love to hear any kind of comments on growth versus value in in that philosophy. It's very well debated, you know, throughout time really, isn't it? It really is. It's always the versus instead of the combination of the two. And that's the way a lot of U.S. investors uh, buy their U.S. equities. They'll own growth and they'll own value. They'll own both. I mean, if you think of the S&P 500, historically, is trying to be both. But sometimes when the markets go in more in favor of growth, it winds up being a growth year type uh, market for the S&P 500. If you look back at statistics many, many years ago, you know, ExxonMobil was one of the largest stocks in the S&P 500. And now it's all dominated by technology over the last, you know, five, six, seven plus years. What's happened really in the U.S. too, especially is there's been this strong bifurcation. So if you, the way we divide things in the United States is we usually do it through the Russell indices. So you have the Russell 1000 value, which is the value indices. You have the Russell 1000 growth, which is the growth industries. And most people would think that those are distinct indices. You will actually find if you pull back the onion that there are some stocks that are in both indices. They're actually listed in both. The Russell just does it. It's, they don't pick one or the other. They kind of weight them slightly different in others. So you can see there's this kind of sort of quasi-blend approach that exists. And for last year, uh, as interest rates started to rise, all that really did was push, push down valuations. So when you do discount cash flow analysis and you have increasing interest rates, that is going to do nothing more than push down your valuation levels on growth stocks. And that's what happened. And on the value side, there are certain areas in the markets that do super well. Um, but the, there's a higher weighting toward energy in the value sectors. There's a higher weighting toward financials in the value sector versus growth. So as interest rates increase, that's usually good for banks and net interest margins. Um, so that's why some of these areas started to do well. But if you really look, last year, the largest or the best performing category as a sector was energy, probably up about uh, 70 plus percent, you know, very, very strong. We had some stocks in this portfolio that have done very well. And that's really where, to, to your, your point, you were asking me about this pullback. I did want to elaborate a little further that why we're slightly hesitant here uh, on this beginning of 2023 is more about the earnings growth, right? It's all about the earnings and year-over-year growth. And, and um, while we talk about inflation kind of being sticky and we talked a little bit about uh, harder-to-find um, workers, their wages are going up. And that has to hit companies' bottom lines at some point in time. Plus, their material costs are going up for the goods and the commodities that they're using to produce their products. So this is why you're starting to see some of these layoffs come on the tech side, but you're not seeing them that drastically outside the tech world. But that's the concern is the year-over-year earnings growth will have a negative uh, growth 
and that will pull back equities, and then that creates a really nice buying opportunity for 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 clients. We think if that happens, because as you were both describing, the health of the U.S. economy is and the world, and the world economy is kind of starting to do pretty well. Yeah, and look, we love a good buying opportunity. Um, now, you run our global equity income portfolio at Shore & Partners under Cullen Capital Management. Now, it's had really impressive returns since it was launched at Shore & Partners. In the last six months, 8.5%, and the last three months, 11%. This month, it was slightly down, 1.97%. However, the objective is the MSCI All Country World Value Index, so you're really smashing that objective. Um, A little bit more about the global equity income model. It's a global strategy that invests in concentrated direct portfolio of dividend paying large cap global stocks and managed using an income and value style. So we really think it is a bit of a stock picker's market. So could you explain more about your stock selection process for this model? Yeah, so exactly as you described it, what we do is we look for uh, three parts to our, our selection process. Um, we look for lower valuations as measured by predominantly low price to earnings ratio, so low PE ratios. So we're looking for lower, uh, lower price to earnings multiples than that of the market. But when you get into specific companies and we're picking, say, a, a, a healthcare company in Sweden, it's going to be measured versus all the other global pharmaceutical companies on a PE relative basis. So we want to see that to be purchased, you know, at a low as best we can. Um, but we also then are looking for stable businesses. We want large, multinational, very stable businesses. And those are the businesses that pay dividends. And while, and then the final thing that we look for at our companies is we're looking for dividend growth. And we want that dividend growth to come from earnings growth. So it compares and contrasts to other things because you could just pick value stocks and not worry about the dividends or cash flows. And then what you're trying to do is hopefully turn around maybe a turnaround story or something that's fallen from grace and you're trying to predict that it could turn around. We don't try to catch those what we call fallen daggers. It's You can get hurt that way. What we'd rather do is find very stable cash flow businesses where they're multinational in nature and they grow their earnings from um, they grow their uh, dividends from earnings growth rather than from borrowing money from uh, the financial markets. So we don't want to see, we don't like when people, you know, they can borrow money for a lower interest rate and pay out a dividend or do share buybacks. We don't like that. We prefer companies that are doing nothing more than growing your earnings at 10%, you increase your dividend at four, you pay out a 3% dividend yield, and you keep the rest for uh, reinvestment in your business. That would be ideal for us. Slow and steady wins the race in Australia. I love that term. The fallen dagger, we call them value traps here. So <laughs> similar. I love it. Yeah, they they rarely exist. They're enticing because they're usually good stories and something happened. Uh, you know, if you look at the US, just with uh, what's recently happened with Intel, that's just one. It's always been a darling stock. Everyone's known Intel, and they still are having a hard time turning that company around. Yeah, because they need to invest more in technology, right? I think they're falling a little bit behind the wayside compared to some other stocks in that same sector. Um, now, in Australia, we absolutely love, you know, dividends. We also love free cash flow companies. So exactly what you've been talking about. Now, many of our listeners mostly own Australian stocks and bonds. So I guess, Jeff, why would you suggest investors look outside of our home market for investment ideas? The primary reason is because when you look around the world from an investment standpoint, or even a company standpoint, uh, there's just world-class leading companies that are just located outside the Australian borders, uh, no different than Austra- located outside of uh, the American borders. You know, you look at firms that we have access to buy, things like uh, companies like Merck, 
uh, based in the U.S., Global Pharmaceutical, Siemens, uh, industrial conglomerate based in uh, Germany, J.P. Morgan or Apple or Microsoft. You talked about some of the tech stocks that exist there. Uh, we own Toyota in this portfolio. We own Zurich Insurance, one of the largest well-run insurance companies that you can actually buy. Novartis is another global pharmaceutical based in Switzerland. So only focusing on the companies in a home market allows you to only really compare Honeycrisp apples to Honeycrisp apples of different farmers or different orchards. You know, you you can only pick from what is in front of you. Where I think this portfolio is a good complement because this, the dividends are so important to the Australian consumer that this portfolio has really been generating at least a 5.5% plus dividend yield. And for a couple of months, we were above six. And yet you have exposure to non-diversified companies outside of your Australian uh, Australian markets. They're globally diversified. They have different revenue sources. They have exposure to the US dollar, to euros. They're globally emerging markets. That's why I would look outside. Yeah, you nailed it on the head because we have to remember here as Australians, we're about only 2-3% of the world economy, right? And really well-run Australian quality businesses are smart enough to diversify the re- revenue streams offshore. So very much agree with that thematic to look uh, you know, to other markets. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jeff. Why are you you know, different? What's your value add to other managers in, in the global space? Well, as you alluded to at the beginning, there are many different kind of styles of investing in, in the global space. You could do um, a growth style, you could do a blend, you could do a value. So on one hand, we only do one style investing. At our firm, we do not have strategies that run the gamut. We don't do fixed income. We don't do growth stocks. All we do is one kind of style, and that is value-oriented investing, which is nice because it, it keeps the majority of our resources from a research perspective focused on, you know, from a valuation perspective. I think for us, we're very disciplined and focused on that dividend yield and dividend growth. And that keeps us uh, focused basically on the discipline. So that allows teams like yourself to properly asset allocate us and deciding when to use us in clients' portfolios and when not to use us in client portfolios. And, and th- you know, that's some, sometimes the answer is it's not to be used, but that's really what we were known for in the United States. We're known for sticking to this discipline. It's a very easy to follow process. It's a little bit more difficult to actually implement. Um, but you can wrap your head around not overpaying for a company, buying a company has good dividend cash flows. And we look for dividends above basically above three plus percent. You know, some of our dividends are actually paying 8%. Last year uh, in this portfolio, we own Petrobras, which is a Brazilian energy company. Because of what's happened with the price of, uh, of oil, they paid out one of the largest dividends of any company in the history of the portfolio. And everyone who owned this portfolio got that dividend. So finding those dividend growers uh, and Tying them to earnings growth is really that, that discipline is probably what I wouldn't say distinguishes us from others because a lot of, there's a lot of great managers who stick to that process, but following those three disciplines and sticking to it, uh, is important to us. You know, to give you a slight example to fill your question is, you know, the index that we're compared against has 60% in the U.S. equity market. So what normal global managers do is they hug the benchmark. They're going to have around 60% in, in U.S. equities. And we don't in this portfolio because if we did, the dividend yield would be around 2%. We couldn't find the dividend yields to uh, to attain that yield. So we, we basically are building a bottom-up portfolio and trying to stick to the mandate that we were hired for, and then you decide when to use us. Yeah, so basically as a global manager, your portfolio is made up of, I think it's 29.5% US, followed by 107 in Switzerland and about 10% in Japan. Just for our listeners' uh, benefit, what was that dividend uh, that Petrobras paid out? 
Was it over 20%? Yeah, it was about, uh, I want to say it was around 25% of their market cap. Wow. wow. It was about 25%. It was a huge, it was a windfall. That's amazing. I mean, we own we don't own Chevron in our portfolio. We own ExxonMobil in this portfolio. But two days ago, Chevron came out with record earnings and they, they increased their share buyback to $75 billion over the next five years because they're flush with cash. Yeah, loaded with cash. Yeah, that is definitely always a good sign. I mean, we actually really think that there's definitely a space in our client's portfolio for your model. We actually did another inflow in today. Um, Now, we're going to go into a bit more detail on your top three stock ideas for these countries. However, first, let's hear from our sponsors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com ACAST. That's burrow.com ACAST. Burrow.com ACAST. And we are back. So, Jeff, this is what we've all been waiting for. Can you please give us some more detail on your top stock ideas in these countries? I think we'll start with the US. Okay, great. Well, the top three positions, you know, we, we weighed our portfolio based upon where we think uh, we're going to have the best appreciation. And right now, our top three positions inside the US are Merck, JP Morgan, and ExxonMobil. Now, I do have to mention that Merck in a market that was down last year, I believe Merck was up about 49%. And one of the reasons is they have a drug called Keytruda, which is an immunology drug that they use basically to fight cancer. And it was originally supposed to be a two or $3 billion drug. And I believe last year it did about 18 or $19 billion in sales. And they have a, they have a new uh, oncology product coming out shortly. So there's a lot of momentum behind Merck it's our largest position. We've actually just took it down a little bit because it was getting a little bit too higher in the weighting in the portfolio. But uh, Merck is a strong favorite within our company across all of our portfolios. Uh, we own JP Morgan. It was down about 13% in 2022, which is not too bad. And uh, it's about 5% year to date. You know, banks should at some point in time be strong beneficiaries of net interest margin increases. So at some point in time, there's going to be a spread that the banks can make. Uh, good money on the capital markets for IPOs obviously has dried up a little bit, but their brokerage business is doing super well. And JP Morgan's flush with cash. You know, Jamie Dimon's been in the paper and the news kind of worried about a little bit of a recession. And uh, we've been watching JP Morgan increase their, um, their reserves. So potential for recessionary times. You see that across the board on some banks. Uh, so we were concerned on that, but as banks go, you know, JP Morgan, uh, is really at the top of one of our lists to own. And the next on the same way, Exxon was up huge last year, it was up about 87%. Uh, this year it's up about 5%. You know, we, energy is still an underweighted 
or an under-owned weighting inside of many, many global indices and global products. There seems to be more room for energy to run. Uh, obviously, not only what's happened in the Ukraine, if, if that ever spiked up even more in a, in a negative way, here you had an incident that happened in Iran overnight, you know, that creates any kind of, any kind of, uh, volatility in the uh, Middle East always has an effect on energy prices and there's just no clear moving away from energy anytime soon. And a lot of these companies are, you know, much more involved in liquefied natural gas and trying to be clean. Just, we talk about all the time, it's going to be very, very difficult for the world to solve the energy crisis without the energy companies. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about that as well, um, which is really interesting. So we've got Merck, JP Morgan, and ExxonMobil. Uh, what about in Switzerland? In Switzerland, our one of our largest positions is uh, Novartis. Uh, again, another global pharmaceutical. We, you know, we've positioned the portfolio. Uh, we took down some of the risk last summer. First of all, the portfolio is really not that risky. We own these global multinational companies, but we even got a little bit more conservative with our weighting because we, we see what I kind of mentioned in the beginning. There could be an earnings, uh, an earnings issue. So we, we've had the portfolio in a little bit of a barbell approach right now with a little bit of an increase of defenses. And then we have some areas in the market that are focused on cyclicals. But, you know, Novartis would, would, would fall right into that defensive, but it's also a, a growth oriented story. They're a very, very consistent producer of new uh, drugs in the pipeline. They've had very, very good, strong success. They have cardiovascular and on, uh, oncology pipeline drugs to fight breast cancer and prostate cancer. So Novartis is one of our largest holdings. Uh, we're very strong fans of it at this point in time. They also, interesting is they spun out something called Alcon, which was an eye care division of their company. They spun that out last year. And they also have a generics business that they're spinning out this year. So what happens when companies spin out side companies that they own is it makes them a pure play. And then those stocks get a re-rating on valuation. So what can happen here is just by spinning off the generics is you could get a, a PE re-rating on the upward slope, which will have a positive impact on the stock price. So uh, we're big fans of that. We also own Zurich Insurance. As I mentioned before, they own um, something called Farmers in the United States. That's one of the very strong insurance companies. So they have life. They also have um, non-life uh, outside of Europe. Non-life insurance is all insurance. But what's happening here a little bit is during COVID, you know, there weren't people driving and there wasn't a lot of accidents. And what's happening here is people are starting to drive again, obviously leading to more accidents on the road, but the cost of those repairs are increasing because the input costs have increased at car companies. So um, Zurich Insurance is actually able to pass on or they're pushing out uh, the premiums. They're increasing the premiums for clients. So again, back to the client is the one who's affected at the end of the day, but they have the pricing power uh, to do so. So they've increased, you know, the, what we're seeing there is the potential for increasing in premiums and um and, you know, that, that just leads to nice, stable cash flow business. Depends what happens, obviously, on their claims. Uh, but we like Zurich, very well diversified global multinational insurance company. Yeah, I mean, we have Zurich here in Australia as well. So, I mean, we definitely use that insurer for our clients for life, TPD and income protection. So we've definitely heard about Zurich insurance for sure. And then all those premiums are coming in. They're just reinvesting those premiums that are on the balance sheet at a higher interest rate environment. So that, again, is one of those behind the scenes. No one's really paying attention to it. They're 
They're basically taking all your premiums. This is why Warren Buffett loves insurance companies. And everyone keeps paying their insurance premium each and every time they take that money. And unless they have to pay it out, they're reinvesting at a higher rate. It's a nice business model. That's true. Because you think that you do think that the minute you cancel your insurance, well, then something's going to happen, right? <laughs> exactly. It's just that kind of luck. So you just kind of want to hold on to it, even though it does increase. Yeah. <laughs> and the final one for us is uh, Nestle. So, you know, immediately everyone loves Nestle and uh, you immediately think of chocolate and, uh, you know, yes. everyone goes to their happy <laughs> place here. But Nestle, you know, it's another defensive company, super steady business, steady dividends. What we like about them is their emerging market exposure and the ability to increase. So you have folks that live in uh, China and India, et cetera, et cetera. They are now... Um, you know, getting their products more and more into, into emerging markets. But this globally diversified. They offer coffee, pet food. They have uh, nutritional and healthcare. Obviously, they make ice cream and chocolate through confectionery. And then they have a, a, big, a very big liquid and um, water division. So very, very steady business. Um, and I don't know what's happening in Australia, but in the U.S., you know, packaged products, there's this push for health and whole foods and all the such, but they're packaging those healthy foods as best they can. I mean, the on-the-go person in the United States is readily available. It's more on the move than sitting at home and having a huge meal every single you know night, seven days a week. Yeah, it's like that here as well. Definitely. I think Nestle and I think Kit Kat. I love a Kit Kat. <laughs> I definitely still like snacks. <laughs> uh, all right. So then we have Japan, yeah. which is definitely a country that probably a lot of our listeners haven't directly invested in yet. Yeah, so Japan for us is a growing market. And what I say by that is for many, many years, Japan has historically been 100% about the worker and full employment and less about shareholders and shareholder equity and reinvest in the business versus paying out dividends. So historically, for many, many, many years, it hasn't been a, a market that has paid good dividends over time. Uh, but that's changing. So we own three positions over there. We own two telecoms. As I mentioned, we've gotten a little bit more conservative. So these are, we own NTT and SoftBank. These are the two largest telecom operators in Japan. If you're very familiar with the Japanese market, it is very, they've always been, I think, in my opinion, one of the leading edges of uh, mobile devices and access to the markets. And those data networks are built out tremendously. So they're kind of past peak of spending to actually build their infrastructure. So when you're past past your peak on spending on actual hardware, everything else becomes very much a cash flow basis. So those two have been very strong. And you know, to give you an idea, in 2022, NTT was up 8% um, and SoftBank was flat. So when you have a global market that's down, you know, you you have people rushing to where there's consistent dividends. NTT pays a 3.5 yield and SoftBank is about a 5.8% yield. And then the final stock we own there is Toyota, which had a little bit of a surprise uh, as of late. Their chairman stepped down, uh, was moving over to a different role, uh, Toyota, as his name. Um, but, you know, Toyota as a company, they've done a great job managing the supply chain. So, you know, if you looked at a lot of the car companies who had issues with semiconductors and, and chips for cars, Toyota actually, they did very well managing their supply chain. They are also flush with cash. They have a great reputation. And they are moving into EVs a bit more slowly than a lot of other companies. A lot of other car companies are diving into the EV space, uh, which is still a you know to be determined demand. There's obviously a lot of demand headlines that exist, but there's a lot of room 
for these combined engines, which is a, a battery and also an internal combustible engine. So I think there's going to be a transition and Toyota's well positioned to, uh, to benefit from there. They also have huge cash flows where you can see them probably, probably, I don't know for sure, but probably start to build some of their own battery factories and capacity. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we definitely still like hybrid cars here in Australia as well. So it's good to hear Toyota, which is very well known to all of our listeners. Yeah, it's been a, it's, 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 it's one of the kind of global multinational companies that we like to, we like to own. So to recap, just those kind of top names in those different geographies, the themes I was catching up are big pharma, financials and insurances. Definitely energy is where you need to be for, you know, 2023 as, as those companies benefit from higher energy prices and flush with cash. Consumer goods and staples, still love them. Telcons and then obviously, car manufacturing, you're liking the Toyota in particular EV play. Have I summarized that correctly? Yes, you did. Awesome. Very lucky. We got lots of picks here. We got nine <laughs> stock picks. I was expecting three and we got nine. How good is that? This is a good episode for our listeners for sure. <laughs> so let's keep the good conversation going with all these amazing stock ideas. Can I ask you some of your lesser known positions? Perhaps they're smaller in the portfolio for a reason um, and they seem to be in the materials sector. So Smurfit, Kappa Group and UPM, why do you like those names? So Smurfit, Kappa Group and UPM, they're similar companies. They, uh, they're in the material sector and what they focus on is uh, paper products, so corrugated boxes. So think of the boxes showing up at your door from anyone that's shipping. So United States, you know, obviously Amazon's super popular, uh, Walmart ships to your home. There's more and more where people are just constantly doing e-commerce. It's easy on their, on their day-to-day lives. As we talked about, people are busy. So that explosion of e-commerce has to be shipped and those boxes are, sh- they're basically showing up in corrugated boxes. So those two companies are two of the leading companies that we, we like. They focus on um, making not only the boxes for e-commerce startup, but there's also a huge push in the United States to get off of plastic as best you can from a packaging perspective, from plastic bags inside of supermarkets. Like in the supermarkets where I uh, live, if you don't bring your own reusable bag, you are charged to buy you have to basically buy the paper bag from them. So it's not even, plastic is not even an option here. So there's a big push for that. You see it in uh, children's sandwiches, not only are brown paper bags, but now you're seeing sandwich bags that are showing up as paper. So these are, these two companies are standing to benefit from the increased demand that is not going to reverse itself. It's only going to increase over time uh, for the use of uh, paper products and that move away from plastic. We see that exactly in our Woolworths, right? They used to have plastic. Now you can't buy plastic bags. You have to buy paper bags. And of course, I always forget to bring my paper bags. So then I end up having to buy more paper bags. So that completely (laughs) makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like the incentives. You know, the incentives are good. Uh, In fact, uh, we have Whole Foods here in the United States. They're owned by Amazon. Right now, they will pay you back if you bring your own bags. So it's not only that you're not getting, not charged, they're actually going to give you a small credit for bringing your bag. They actually ask you at the cashier, how many bags did you bring? So that's a great incentive. That's great. I wish they had that here. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's small, but it's the, it's that reminder for people to do it. And uh, that's the part that has to change. It's the consumer behavior that needs to change to make this uh, a cleaner, you know, cleaner environment for us. It's too easy to take a plastic bag and just throw it away and walk away. But yeah, uh, you know, there's a bigger part of an ESG focus here. And really, to what are your 
you were mentioning themes before, you know, one of the bigger themes that we have as well is not only on the material side, but also within the material space, uh, we're huge fans of like the miners of copper and iron ore, especially copper um, and nickel. The use of copper and nickel inside of EVs and all things electronic is just going to be on the increase for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I would, I would round out our materials sector with with some of those positions are are definitely attractive to us. Yeah, absolutely. We 100% agree. And we've said it many times on our episodes, various episodes, future-facing commodities, right, are really going to be where you want to be invested for the next 20 plus years because there's actually not enough supply to meet demand. So it's a bit of a no-brainer to invest in those thematics. So you've given us quite a few, but are there any other investment thematics that you and your team are looking at or investing coming into 2023? Well, you know, obviously ESG is a very popular investment style inside the United States. I think around the world, people are kind of conscious about it. Um, so we we like the materials, as I mentioned, and some of the packaging. Um, we also have a focus on renewable energy of sorts. We own uh, Enel, which is a, a utility operator. And what you're finding in in some of these utility operators is there is there they're cash flow rich, right? Because people are paying their monthly bill for utilities. But what they're investing in, in many instances, is either solar or uh, wind, and they're starting to generate uh, renewable energy from that from that source. So like in the United States, for example, there's a stock we own in some of our other portfolios, not this particular portfolio, but it's called Nextera Energy. And the way it works is basically it's a utility company, and they each state needs to buy a certain percentage of their energy from renewables. And if the local utility can't do that. They have to buy it from someone who is producing it. So you have this, when you build out your infrastructure of renewables, either through solar or wind, and then you have this extra capacity that you can sell to either other utility companies, it creates a really nice windfall from that production. And we're starting to see that in Europe. And that's that's probably one of the themes you see. You also see in this portfolio a bias toward, um, there's certain areas of the world that are kind of easier for companies to do business in. So while we own Total, we probably prefer more of the U.S. operators of energy because to be a operator of energy inside of Europe has a lot of regulations around it. It becomes very difficult for them. There's a lot of compliance that they have to follow. So there's certain um, certain areas of the world tend to do certain markets and sectors a little bit better. You know, generally speaking, you can say, I like I like the Swiss for pharmaceuticals. I like Germany for industrials. I like the UK for global multinationals because of their laws. Uh, you could headquarter your company there even though you're doing multinational around the world. They are some really interesting themes of thematic and I definitely agree with them. And I think, you know, they're not themes that are just going to benefit well in 2023, but they will stack up for years to come, hopefully decades, right? So really good to hear that. But just quickly coming back to today's market and what investors are facing right now, let's say you've just met a new investor, they've got a million dollars to spend into the markets. You know, what would you say investors need to be cautious on, you know, risk on, risk off, that conversation, that debate we're all having internally is now, you know, cautiously edge in, that's what we think, or do you just wait? It's really hard to time the market, but no crystal ball. I guess the next big news is the Fed's meeting very shortly. What's your thoughts on that? The no crystal ball comment is a perfect one. It's, I, I think the leg in is probably always seems to be historically of doing this for a long period of time the proper way. It's completely difficult to call if Jerome Powell gives any indication that the Fed is going to raise one more time and not three 
then we're off to the races. And if he kind of hints that we're going to stay longer into 2024, even though the markets are not expecting that, then you're going to go pull back. So I think, uh, you know, for a lot of clients, one thing to do is as interest rates have risen, it's given you a really nice opportunity to be ready in cash. And while the interest rates, I, I don't know exactly the rates over in Australia at this point in time, but in the U.S., you can get a CD for a 4% interest thereabout. Taking that cash and having that opportunity to leg into certain sectors or certain markets would be probably a, a good, a good opportunity. On our particular strategy, you know, the fact that we're value and we're dividend, you know, we're, you have some insulation on the downside here. You know, when things go poorly, uh, investors rush to the kind of things we own because they want the stability. They want the defensiveness. They want the dividend cash flow. So you have a pretty good backstop of investors coming our way. And if the market goes the other way, and completely rips forward uh, from everyone from a speculative stock, we're going to participate as well. We're just going to maybe lag a little bit compared to some of the growthier names in the marketplace. So, you know, having some exposure, I think, across the board is uh, good. I think legging in is probably the proper way to go. It's very, very difficult. You know, if you looked at CIO write-ups from various firms that we follow very closely, they were expecting a fourth quarter pullback and you had a super strong fourth quarter for the most part. So... Uh, they get it wrong very often. The only thing to probably keep in mind probably is Powell's been very, 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 very consistent on the higher for longer. Everyone from the Fed is singing from the same tune. So for him and the team to pull an about face, you lose credibility. So there's a little bit of a, you might have a little bit of an ego game going on here, uh, but we'll see. The wild card probably continues to be US unemployment. And uh, I would just leave you with, as a U.S. person here, yes, you got to remember, unemployment isn't necessarily measured by the amount of uh, value that job had versus the other one created. It's a oh, it's a one for one. You let a tech worker go and you hire someone to do a different kind of role that maybe doesn't pay as much. It's still a, a one for one. So there's still demand showing up on uh, literally windows when you walk into a local Starbucks or, a, or we have Dunkin' Donuts here or something along that lines or even like a uh, a little restaurant. There is demand for people, and uh, you know most of the sh- most of the layoffs you see from these tech companies, you can feel like they've overextended themselves. They were trying to get into uh, AI and all kinds of interesting things, which maybe is there, but they're not paying off any kind of dividend. So it's not surprising if you start seeing mass layoffs by industrials and other companies, then I'd be surprised. But uh, we're not seeing it in the headlines at this point in time, which would tell you that that number is going to stay low for a longer period of time. And that's going to put pressure on Powell to keep rates higher. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's what we think as well, right? We know the tech companies are really cutting the fat. They've overhired during COVID in the last couple of years when interest rates were low. Um, so I guess, I don't know if you can tell us this, but I mean, what uh, areas of the market or potential stocks are you looking at adding to the portfolio that haven't actually been added yet? No, it's a cheeky question. A lot of people don't like to give it away, but can you give us a little hint on what you're potentially looking at adding? Okay, I'll give you three three more names. I can't give you the names of the companies because they're actually being, we're in the process of trying to add them to this actual portfolio. The trades were being ushered in through the trade desk. Okay. I saw the communication on today, but I'll give you an idea, a general feel. So it's a guessing game for us and our listeners. Love it. We are looking to buy an ag company that basically does a lot of things with fertilizer because of what's happened in Ukraine. You've had, with all the wheat that's produced there and because of what's happening with Russia, you're going to have, you have a, you have a need. There's a global need. So uh, 
other areas of the world are stepping up to be that farmer for uh, wheat and such. So they're going to need ag products. And uh, there's a company that we're looking to purchase in that portfolio. We are looking to add another, it's another mining company. They do iron ore, coal, and copper. So there's, uh, it's along that same kind of play of materials of what's happening inside of uh, the creation of, of actual goods versus uh, services. And I can't say the next one. Because <laughs> it's in, why? Do you think we're going to get it? Well, it's probably in the name. You'll guess it. <laughs> yeah, it's local to you. It's local to us. Interesting. I wonder if it's something we've already actually pitched as well on Talk Money to Me. Well, look, our guests will find out soon anyway, won't we? You will. We will. You will. And we can update our listeners when we do find out. Um, and then you can consider whether you want to put it into your own portfolios. I can't wait for those three companies to be added so we can do our own research on them. You do your own research. Well, Jeff, that was really great insights. Thank you so much. You went up and beyond with, you know, talking about thematics for 2023, investable ideas, and of course, the portfolio. One final question before we leave you we ask all of our special guests on talk money to me here coffee tea or tequila what's your preference what time of day is it we're recording at 11 o'clock local time so what would you have it's 11 o'clock local time it would uh be likely a second cup of coffee a second cup of coffee you know that makes sense (laughs) a nestle coffee or a starbucks probably a nestle coffee if it was my first cup it would be a starbucks and it would just be one then for the day starbucks tends to be a little stronger (laughs) i agree that's great well thank you jeff so much for joining us today this was a fantastic episode and we look forward to seeing what those stock ideas actually are in the coming weeks or months thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure i think uh really enjoyed being here and it's an exciting uh it's an exciting podcast to be a part of Wow, that was a great chat. I was writing down so many great investable ideas and I hope you did as well. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are advisors at Shore & Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice and you should always go out and seek your own professional financial advice before you make your investment decisions. The companies and facts are all based on at the time of recording, which is the 31st of January, 2023. If you want to get access to the Shore and Partners Global Equity Income Model Portfolio, you can contact us at tmtm at equitymates.com or follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Uh, if so, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.